And the rest of us are going to be in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a, a faith that shrinks back. According to a 2019 Pew Research report, Christianity in the U.S. is declining on a very rapid pace. 65% now claim Christianity as their religion. 15 years ago, 78% of people in the U.S. claimed that Christianity was their religion. The ranks of the religiously unaffiliated sometimes called the nuns, meaning no religion, uh, has increased from 16% in the U.S. to 26%, and it's continuing to increase. The female populations of nuns is growing faster than the male population of nuns. Gen Z women are more likely to be nuns than Gen Z men. 43% um, of millennials... Those born from 1984 to 2002 say they don't know, they don't care, and they don't believe God exists. Now listen to this one. A recent report from InterVarsity Church Resources states that 66% of church kids will drop out of church in college. Now that all highlights one huge fact for me. A lot of people have been exposed to some form of Christianity, but not a lot of people will stick with a commitment to follow Christ. If you and I care about people, that should have a huge impact on us. Because people without Jesus face an eternity of condemnation and punishment whether we like that or not, that's just not like how I planned everything. That's what Jesus said. We are not called to a comfortable life in America. We are called to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Jesus. We are not to be an obstacle for people. So last week in John chapter 6, we saw that people were following Jesus and they began to pull away. Um, today we come to Jesus and what we see is an exodus by people. They drop out because they don't like Jesus' priorities or Jesus' words. And so I want to go back to last week and just pick up a couple of passages to, to reframe the context of what we're talking about today. Uh, chapter, uh, John chapter 6, verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. This starts with a group of pe complaining people. Apparently, Jesus is not the, the Messiah in their thinking. He's not what they were looking for. They are certain that Jesus is not from heaven, that he's the bread of life that came from heaven. He's just Joseph and Mary's boy. 
Then in verses 51 through 55 in John 6, Jesus continued, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus claimed to be from heaven. He claims to be the living bread from heaven. He claims he will give his flesh. And we talked about this last week. He meant give his body. He was already looking ahead to the cross. That he would give his body for the life of the world. There would be a great exchange in heaven. And the penalty of sin would be paid for by the life of of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the Messiah. Jesus' life that is infinitely valuable would pay the sin penalty of billions and billions and billions of people because no matter how big that sin penalty is, it's a finite sin penalty paid for with an infinite payment. Verse 52 says that the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Now, you know, that's kind of a good question. But Jesus' words cause very angry reactions. This teaching of Jesus makes no sense to them. It's ridiculous to be a cannibal and eat Jesus' flesh. It would be gross. It would be a horrible abomination, revolting. And then verse 53, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, meaning him, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so Jesus just kind of pours gasoline on the fire for them. He makes it quite clear, unless they take action unless they respond to his words, they are without spiritual life. They are left facing a spiritual death. And this is one of the hard sayings of Jesus. And and we really focused on this last week. Does it mean literally that people were supposed to eat Jesus' flesh and drink Jesus' blood? Now, Or was Jesus speaking metaphorically? Was he using this as a figure of speech? Now, I have to be uh, sympathetic, a little bit sympathetic with the audience because of their knowledge of the Old Testament. They have more knowledge of the Old Testament than we do. But in Luke chapter 17, let me just read what Luke 17 says. This is God speaking. Verses 10, he says, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them that eats blood. Pretty gross. And I will cut them off from the people, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. So this is, this is in their mind. They know it can't be from God that God would want anyone to eat flesh or drink blood. It's detestable to God. And so 
Jesus is, has a hard saying. What does this mean? Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Present tense, right now. And not only that, Jesus said, I will raise them up on the last day. There will be a resurrection coming and Jesus will establish an eternal kingdom. And at that time, these people will be raised up to be with Jesus. There will, they will be resurrected to be with Jesus. Now, we did see last week that Jesus was speaking metaphorically, using a kind of radical hyperbole, hyperbole and that was his style often. He said some really hard things. And they were designed to stir people up and to cause them to think. There's a lot of things in the Bible like that. The book of Proverbs is like that. It, it has these awkward statements, and they're to cause people to think and to figure them out. And, and that's, what, that's what Jesus is doing with these words. And he says, and what he was talking about, he's saying that you must take on my life. You must get me into you, and you must receive me by faith. You must put your trust in my word. Verse 55, my flesh is real and my food and my, uh, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Real food and real drink is about having a real relationship with Jesus. It provides real living, empowered and nourished by Jesus himself when we're connected to him. Now, that's all the context, okay? Now, let's look at the passage we have today. And we start with faith that is offended in verses 60 through 65. We see the offense in verse 60 and 61. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard, the hard teaching. Do you think? Who can accept it? It's a hard teaching, difficult to understand. It seems impossible to accept because God wouldn't want this to happen to anyone that, there, that someone would eat someone's flesh and drink their blood. But Jesus knew what was in the human heart. John chapter 2, verse 25. We see in verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you, by the way? And yes, it did. Now, when it's John says his disciples, you know, the question is, well, who are these people? His disciples. You may know that the word disciple just literally means a learner. In the New Testament, it, is, it doesn't always have a technical definition. It just means a learner. Here, it's somebody who got attached to a rabbi, a teacher, and is following them and listening to them. And that's what we have here is we have a group of people that have just determined to connect with Jesus and hang out uh, when they get the chance. And that's not all bad. Um, these people are here because they've seen the miracles of Jesus. And that's been pretty cool. And they like it. It's, it's impressive. Um, a lot of people in this group already have an agenda for Jesus. They already have a plan uh, when he comes into his kingdom, they, they know exactly how uh, he should manage it. The, they aren't necessarily true or genuine believers. They just are curious. 
and they're pretty practical if Jesus can do what they would like him to do. But let's go back to verse 61 and talk about grumbling. Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, does this offend you? So people were complaining about Jesus. They were offended by Jesus. How dared Jesus say these things? Now, if you know the Old Testament, all through history, God's people have been complainers and grumblers. And uh, one of the great stories is the story in the book of Exodus about how God led his people out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 20. And uh, th- then you can read the book of Numbers to see how, all, and Deuteronomy to see how that plays out. And God intentionally leads them into the desert, into the wilderness where it's going to be hard. It wasn't the short route. It was the long way. And he just kept them out there for 40 years. And you know what they did? Were they so thankful that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt? Nope. They didn't like the food. They grumbled and they complained. They were not happy with how God is leading. They were not happy with how God is providing. They were not happy about God's methods. You know what? That's true in the church sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we're not happy about God's plans for us. We're not happy about what God is doing. We don't like the way he's doing it sometimes. Sometimes we grumble and we complain So my question is, if you have a complaint, do you take it to God? That's what the psalmist did. We know that life is hard. You know, there's so many people leaving the church. And I think there's a tendency for us to think the reason people are leaving the church is because life is so hard and our world is so difficult and it's so far from God. Our world has always been pretty far from God. And God's people have um, experienced severe persecution. And the church has thrived. It's not difficulty that keeps the church back. It's the people. I think the problem with people leaving the church is us. It's, It's how we live. It's how we respond to our circumstances. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul gives these words, do everything without grumbling or arguing. What? Everything? Are you sure? Why? Verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and a crooked generation. We live in a difficult generation. So many things have changed in our culture. So many things that... um, are different from the way God has designed things. That's where we live. The church could thrive here. But sometimes we just start thinking about our circumstances and how unhappy we are and how difficult it is, and we end up just complaining about it. But the Apostle Paul says if we 
can walk with Jesus without grumbling or arguing, then you will shine among them in your generation, in your culture, like them as stars in the sky. Could it be that the reason that kids are leaving church is because of the church? It's because some Christ followers are not following and they're not shining like lights. And so many kids grow up in the church and when they don't have to go to church, they decide this isn't important, this is not valuable. There doesn't seem to be anything meaningful about the Christian faith. The hard sayings are intensified in verse 62. And then Jesus says these words. It seems like it's kind of out of place. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? What's that about? These these people are complaining that he's talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Jesus is talking about his ascension. He's already descended to earth. He's already come to earth. He's already been born uh, in Bethlehem through a virgin birth and entered our world. He is the bread that comes from heaven. And Jesus is talking about the future, where things are going. It's going to include giving his body, his life for the whole world. It's going to include a death and a burial and a resurrection, but he doesn't use these words. But what he does say, there's going to be an ascension. What if you were able to see that? Would that make a difference to you? Would you think I was the Messiah if you watched me ascend into heaven right before you? Verse 63 gives this offer. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. It is God's Spirit that gives life, spiritual life, eternal life. It is the gift of of God for all who believe. And then Jesus says, flesh counts for nothing, meaning our personal efforts. Um, Trying to do things in our own strength, in our own way, count for nothing. The words of Jesus were full of spirit and life. It is the word of God, the living. His words were the living and powerful word of God that pierces even to the dividing of soul and spirit, and it judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Jesus' words were God's word, And his word gives life, and it gives spiritual nourishment and spiritual wisdom and spiritual enablement. And then we see the refusal in verse 64. Yet some of you you do not believe, Jesus said. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Jesus knew his audience. He, He knew everyone in it. He knew their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. He knew that some of them didn't really believe. They didn't trust him. Jesus also knew um, that one of them would betray him. Look at verse 64. Yet some of you who do not believe, Jesus said, 
Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He knew their hearts. He knew the one who would betray him, and he knew it from the beginning, and he chose him. That's a mystery. Why did Jesus choose the one who would betray him? We wouldn't do that. Verse 65, he continues with God's divine enablement. Verse 65, and he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled me. Now, we saw this earlier in John chapter 6. Having a relationship with Jesus ultimately is the work of God. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father enables him. Salvation is a God thing. It is the work of God. The Father works in the heart of someone who does not know Jesus, and he stirs them, he draws them, he creates a curiosity about God, about who Jesus is. And our response is to, is to believe what God has said, what God has said and what God has done through his son, Jesus. And this is what we try to do, what humans try to do, is we try to come up with our own way of doing things, how, G, how God should do things, how religion should be designed so that it works well with our lives. We can create our own theology. But Jesus' words have a great impact on his audience, and we see that in verses 66 through 71, when we see that faith, that shrinks back. And we have people who drop out, verse 66. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The crowd had some of their own ideas for Jesus' kingdom agenda. Jesus was obviously not a people pleaser. Please note that you can be like Jesus without being a people pleaser. Some of you have such a strong focus on pleasing people because you think it's loving. It's not always loving. Jesus was willing to say hard things. Jesus didn't make it easy for this particular group to follow him. They didn't want to hear about Jesus' sacrifice of flesh and blood because life is in the blood. They didn't want his life on his terms, so they dropped out. Now Jesus turns to his own uh, hand-picked uh, disciples, the 12, and he posed this hard question in verse 67. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? What about you guys? Do you want to leave? Jesus is going to give them a chance to step away. It's also a test, a test for their faith. Where do, you, where do they stand with Jesus? Good question for us today is, where do we stand with Jesus today? Now, I don't know your heart that's a good thing. Um, but Jesus knows your heart. Uh, would you say you have a close relationship with Jesus today? 
that you're trusting in him, you're hopeful, um, you're, you're even enthusiastic about the future and walking with him? Are you unsure? Are you full of doubt? Are you, are you uncertain about Jesus and, and what he wants? Do you lack direction? Do you have little hope? Where do you stand with Jesus today? I love uh, Peter's answer in verses 68 and 69 when he makes this commitment. He says, Lord, Jesus asked, what about you guys? And he says, Lord, where should we go? When you think about this, what, what are our options? There, there are no other options, Jesus. Uh, nothing compares to you. Lord, we're with you. He says, Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. You speak truth, Jesus. It's, it's, it's hard sometimes. Your words are the word of God. You know the answers to life. You have the power of life. You have the authority of God when you speak. And then Peter says this in his conclusion. We have come to believe. And we know that you are the Holy One of God. You are God's Messiah. You are God's promised one. You are the one that God sent to deliver us, to save us. You are the Savior. Peter says, our lives may not be easy, but we're going to follow you. Now, this, the, this whole section closes with verses 70 and 71. And Jesus makes this call. Jesus says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him, he would drop out. Um, Jesus picked Judas intentionally. This was not a mistake. God always had a plan for Jesus. Jesus always had a plan to do the will of the Father. And God always had a plan to sacrifice his son as a payment for the sin penalty of the world. That's why he sent his son. He, because he loves the world. He loves us. And he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That was always God's plan. And it was God's plan that Judas be the one to point Jesus to an execution. One of the things I think about this passage, you know, I, I wonder about that. You know, here Jesus is, the smartest person in the world, and, and he picks Judas, and he, and he could have known better. Why did he do it? And then when you think about all the implications, and I think we have a lot of insight here. Um, I think it's, uh, there's, one insight is that, you know, the, the disciples, the other 11, they didn't know it was Judas. Not until the end. For three years, they hung out together. They served together. 
Judas did all of the things that he, that he was instructed to do. We also know that he used to take some money from the treasury. That wasn't good. We don't know all that happened. But the disciples were clueless about Judas. And I just think there's some insight for the church because, you know, there are a lot of church people and there are church people that look really good and they seem to have it all together. But sometimes there are church people that are just going through the motions. Um, we can select people or choose people that we think are really right on, and yet we can make a mistake because deep down there was not a genuine belief. Now, I'm not discouraged by that. I mean, I think spiritual things are spiritually discerned primarily, but it's not impossible for us to make assumptions about people, thinking, well, they are, you know, they prayed the prayer when they were seven, so they must be a believer. Or I remember they did this, so they must be a believer. Um, in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 38, the writer of Hebrews says, but my righteous one will live by faith. This, this passage is uh, mentioned uh, at least three times in the Bible. And uh, my righteous one will live by faith. This, this spurred the Protestant Reformation, by the way. My righteous one will start by faith. It begins, a personal relationship with God begins with believing in Jesus. What God has said about his son, who Jesus is and what God has said. That's where it begins. But faith just doesn't go away because we begin a relationship with Jesus. We follow Jesus day by day by faith. It's about taking God at his word. It's about following. Jesus gave instructions to obey. And day by day, we follow because we value what we choose to do what Jesus said. We trust him. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes the circumstances look like, well, this would be a more efficient or a more financially beneficial thing to do if we did it this way. And Jesus wants us to do it his way. And that's living by faith. That's trusting him one day at a time. In verse 38, uh, God says, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Some people shrink back from following Jesus. And God takes no pleasure in that. Truly righteous people live by faith. They follow Jesus, not the crowd, not the cool people, not the latest trends, not a life of comfort or prestige. It's about what Jesus wants and his priorities. Verse 39, but do not... But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. The writer of Hebrews says, that's not us. And we know he's challenging his audience because there's a lot of confusion in the first century among some Jewish Christians about the way of salvation and the walk after salvation. There's a lot of confusion, some confusion about the gospel, 
And the writer of Hebrews is just wanting God's people to trust Jesus and to walk with him and to live by faith. However, some people turn back and they stop following. And in this case, the writer of Hebrews says they were never really genuine followers of Jesus. I think John the Baptist's words are appropriate for us. He must become greater, and I must become less. Jesus must become greater, a greater focus in our life, a greater priority in our life. And I must continue to take backstage. Life is not about me. This is one of the most important things in the Christian life. Life is not about me. Life is about Jesus and what Jesus is doing. Life is about my story fitting into Jesus' story. Life is really about whether I'm following Jesus or not. 66% of church kids leave the church when they are in college. No one, none of us can guarantee that our own kids will walk with Jesus. But how we live can make a huge difference. If we walk with Jesus, our kids are going to fare far better in their own lives. There's no absolute guarantees about our kids. Each person is responsible for their own choices. But you know, kids can spot phonies, can't they, mom and dad and grandparents? They can spot hypocrites. They know when people are trying to pull off the Christian thing so that they appear like they're doing all the right things. But they can see some of the things that are in our hearts and the way our attitudes, what we talk about, who we criticize. And churches have a huge impact on kids for good and for bad. Churches that are divisive and critical and hateful turn kids off. You know, the interesting thing, kids are not afraid to follow Jesus. That's, that's pretty amazing. But they need people to show them how to walk. They need, they need to see people who've gone ahead of them and that are cheerleaders and that encourage them, not just tell them what to do. We have a, a vision statement at the bridge, and here's what it says. We dream of a church where people seek to be good news as they share the good news they seek to be good news where they live, where they work, where they go to school, in their neighborhoods. The issue is sometimes Christians are bad news in the way they live, their attitudes, their priorities, and they repel people from Jesus. We have good news to share, and how we live makes a huge difference. 
Do our lives display good news or do our lives look more like bad news? Let's stand and let's pray together. Gracious God, we just come before you today and we look at John chapter 6 and we, we see that there are some hard things in there that Jesus says. And we know that we're called to faith in Christ and to follow Christ. And God, we just need your help every day. May you enable us to do that. God, sometimes we complain. Sometimes we grumble. Sometimes we don't like your plans. We don't like your methods. We don't like your provision sometimes. And, and we complain. God, right now, would you search our hearts? Would you show us our attitudes, our complaints? God, as we look at our lives right now, just, just, take, just reflect now. Are there things in our lives right now that are not pleasing to you? things that are out of place for a Christ follower. God, give us the courage right now to be honest before you, to, to confess our sin to you. Would you humble us before you? Thank you so much, God, for 1 John 1, 9, that says that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us of all unrighteousness, that you'll purify us. Thank you, God, for that promise. Because we are not perfect people, and we fail, and we fall down, and you've made a way for us to get back up. And God, as we're honest before you today, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? We want to yield into your hands. We want to yield our lives to you. We desire to be empowered by you. We desire to represent you well. We desire to shine as lights in our world. Lord, use us to help people to connect with you. Lord, help us to be fully devoted followers of Jesus so that we can help others grow as followers of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.